good day, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Anderson, your host. And as always, thanks for tuning in. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. We all know those words pretty well because they're emblazoned at the foot of the Statue of Liberty in New York. And for a lot of us, they are words that describe what this country is supposed to stand for. It's kind of a motto about America and the incredible mix of people from all around the world who make up our population. But of course, immigration itself, the process of people coming to this country, is a constant political battleground here in America. And in recent years, we have been seeing somewhat unique and cruel political actions take place around that issue. On Tuesday, for instance, some migrants were flown from Texas to Massachusetts. It's a stunt that was just the latest in an escalating series of efforts by Republican governors, mostly in border states, to send migrants from their states to Democratic strongholds. The idea is, hey, you guys like immigration. You like the idea of immigration. So maybe you should deal with more immigration. In the past month, migrants have been shipped by bus or plane to the state capitals in some of these states and to the residence of Vice President Kamala Harris, even. These border state governors say these moves are necessary as they bear the overwhelming brunt of issues regarding immigration. And, of course, it's true that in America, our border states have to deal with an influx of immigrants trying to enter the country that doesn't look the same as it does in other states. Since President Biden took office, more than a million migrants have entered the country, many who will wait months or years to have their cases heard because of incredible backlogs. And this is somewhat similar to what we've seen under the previous administration of Donald Trump. But this recent action from border state governors really raises a lot of questions. I don't think anybody who is watching this can watch without some sort of passionate response to what's happening. Imagine picking up from where you live and going to another country without knowing whether you could be accepted there, not knowing what would happen to your family, and then being sort of ferried around as a political chit. The idea that your presence in the country is about our politics and not your aspirations. That's where we want to begin the conversation today, talking about immigration, talking about this action by border state Republican governors and the cruelty of this policy, the cruelty to these migrants who, whatever you think of immigration as a policy issue, are human beings who want to be Americans. We've got a couple of great guests to help us 
think through and talk about all of this. Atlantic staff writer Caitlin Dickerson has done extensive reporting on our immigration system over many years. She joined us a few weeks back to talk about immigration, and she is back with us today. Caitlin, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks so much for having me. Also with us is Ruby Robinson, uh, managing attorney at the Michigan Immigration Rights Center. Ruby, welcome back to Detroit Today as well. It's great to be here. Thank you. So, uh, Caitlin, uh, let's start with you. Let's talk about this shipping of migrants across state borders. Uh, what is going on here? What does this look like and feel like on the ground? And uh, what, is this, what does this mean in the context of this larger narrative uh, around immigration and immigration policy in this country? So I'll start with what it looks like. And this began with governors Greg Abbott in Texas and and Doug Ducey in Arizona um, shipping effectively um, thousands of of migrants in the last several months to cities like Washington, D.C. and New York, as as you pointed out earlier, a, a bit of a political stunt to say, you know, you deal with it, right, because they're frustrated that at least they say they feel that, you know, um, places like cities that have offered, you know, forms of protection to people living there without legal status are only encouraging more migration and, you know, creating problems, in in quotes, um, for border states. Certainly, as you mentioned, you know, with large numbers of people crossing the border in the short term, that is overwhelming um, for localities that, you know, are, are the first recipients um, to newcomers, but you know, they tend to be short-term issues. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's important to point out that it's not as if you know, the, the civic infrastructure of Texas or Arizona is you know, crumbling because of migrants. It's just not true. I mean, and, and I think it's important for listeners, you know, to be critical, um, you know, when you hear, and by that, I mean, you know, not to criticize, but to question, you know, when you hear um, talk of, of Biden's border crisis, you know, I, I don't want to minimize the significance of the number of people who have come to the United States in recent months. But, you know, look at the healthcare systems, look at, you know, public schools, these systems are not crumbling. Um, and there are a number of reasons for that, which we can get into. But um, by and large, once people start to get established and, and go through their legal process, their immigration process, you know, they integrate in, into the country fairly smoothly mm-hmm. and, and you don't really hear much about them again, which is why um, I think it's one of uh, the tells that um, this stunt is is not really a factually based one. You know, it, it's one that's intended to scare and fearmonger, but there's a reason why um, it hasn't, you know, sat particularly well with people who are watching. And I think that's true on both sides of the aisle because it, it seems to use individuals as pawns to make a point that, you know, there isn't a whole lot of support for. And so then most recently, um, I'll just quickly end this answer by saying that Ron DeSantis in Florida, um, who we know is a you know Republican hopeful for to run for president in mm-hmm. 2024, saw what Abbott and Ducey were doing and seemed to think that was a great idea. So he he joined on, but in a slightly more sinister, if you will, way in that it seems people who um, he helped to organize, you know, being sent to Martha's Vineyard, didn't even actually know where they were going and, and seemed to have been misled based on what 
we're hearing um, and, you know, that and have filed a lawsuit as a result of it. So um, it seems to be escalating. But, you know, a lot of criticism coming from the left and the right now, which makes me wonder whether this might um, come to an end. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, Ruby, I want to bring you into the conversation here. Uh, here in Michigan, of course, we're a border state, too. And it always strikes me that this issue looks so different uh, for us than it does for Texas or Arizona uh, or Florida. And, of course, that, that has to do with, with the immigrants who, who come across and, and why, what, what ethnicity uh, they are, but I'm curious uh, at, at your reaction to what's being done here. I mean, this is an incredibly uh, purposeful act uh, to disrupt, I guess, the regular immigration process. In fact, the state of Florida has budgeted $12 million to transport to transport migrants and spent a record uh, or reported $615,000 chartering planes to send Texas migrants to Martha's Vineyard. Uh, as somebody who works in a state that uh, that deals with border issues and, and uh, welcomes immigrants, I'm, I'm, I'm really curious at your, your reaction to what's happening here. Yeah, thank you. So I, I agree with Caitlin um, in terms of kind of the overall approach and that this is, you know, more or less a stunt, but it has real effects on the cases and the lives of these asylum seekers, the migrants who are here in the United States. It is 100% legal to apply for protection, asylum, or other forms of relief in the United States. And that's what all of these individuals did. They came to a border. They demonstrated that they have a credible fear of um, of persecution in their home country, and then they were permitted to move forward in the United States in immigration courts um, to actually present their case. And it's something we see every day. We are in the Detroit immigration court every single day talking to people who are here in the United States for the first time, or people in the United States who have been here for 10 or 15 years, you know, continuing to fight their case, or maybe they you know, had a green card in the past and mm-hmm. they made a mistake. Um, but what, but what's, you know, so um, harsh and kind of dastardly about what we're seeing now is these people who were duped, many um, being moved to other cities, but their immigration court cases are still proceeding in the districts where they previously were, even mm-hmm. if it were a short amount of time. So for example, if somebody entered in Texas, they might have a hearing in Harlingen, Texas, hmm. or in Houston, Texas. And then they're being sent to Boston, Martha's Vineyard, New York City, Washington, D.C. It's very difficult to go back to the court. You know, Now they have to return to the court for a hearing in a week or two weeks or three weeks. Um, so, you know, one of the, I hope, unintended effects of this, I mean, I, I don't want to presume anything, is that it's actually going to result in people being ordered deported right. because they can't get back to the hearings um, and the ICE check-ins that, that they're required to do. And the vast majority of our clients and the people we talk to are fastidious about attending their hearings and about uh, attending their appointments because they don't want um, you know, further restrictions. They don't want to um, you know, kind of upset the system uh, at them. So th- th- those are some of the concerns that we have about... Um, from just kind of the 
immigration point of view, that um, it can really affect their ability to present their case, that they have demonstrated that they have a, a viable form of relief. Yeah, yeah. So so uh, that, that raises another really interesting dimension of, of this discussion, and I want both of you to talk just a little about it. Immigration is, for the most part in this country, a federal issue. The the, the laws that, that that govern who comes, who doesn't, the processes for uh, you know adjudicating requests for asylum, uh, and and things like that are all handled at the at the federal level. What we are seeing in the last few weeks is state actors, uh, governors. Uh, deciding that they're going to enact immigration policy. And, and Ruby, as you point out, some of what they're doing is actually a disruption to that, that national, that federal process. Uh, and I guess I wonder if that is ultimately the tension that will have to be resolved, which is, is this a federal issue? Is this, you know, is immigration and, and are, are these issues to be handled by the federal government? And do states even have the right to do what they're doing here because it's so disruptive? Ruby, Ruby, I'll start with you and then we'll go to, back to Caitlin. Yeah, you're 100% correct that immigration is a federal issue and it has always been a federal issue. But we have seen over the past several years, specifically, uh, probably most apparently in 2012 with the Supreme Court's case, Arizona versus the United States, you may remember um, Senate Bill 1070, which basically tried to um, use state power to um, not permit people who did not have legal status or presence in Arizona to be able to stay there and to essentially discriminate against non-citizens without status in Arizona at the time. And the Supreme Court threw that out um, and said that, you know, the federal power uh, toward immigration, it supersedes any attempt that you have as a state to control it. Uh, We saw this, unfortunately, in 2015 and 2016, even when, uh, at that time, Governor Snyder of Michigan said, you know, we should pause admitting Syrian refugees because we don't really know what the background checks are. Mm -hmm. And we even saw, for example, this in the state of Indiana, they tried to stop um, the resettlement of refugees at the time. It was, uh, and the ACLU actually sued then Governor Mike Pence to basically say, like, you, you can't. Um, and it was, and the ACLU and, um, uh, was successful in its lawsuits, basically saying, like, you, you can't stop the federal government from pursuing its refugee resettlement operations. And, and in a nutshell, one of the fundamental rights that exists in the United States is the fundamental right to travel. Mm-hmm. And states do not have the authority to erect borders um, in terms of preventing who can enter their state. Um, they you know, certainly have the means of enticing people to come to their state sure. um, in like the, the common sense of, of enticement. You know, enticement is its own separate legal thing, and, um, and that may actually play out in some of the litigation that has um, developed after, um, you know, after these stunts. But you know, states and the Supreme Court has been consistent using a variety of means over its history, basically um, stating that um, 
there's a fundamental right to travel. Right. People travel for all sorts of reasons within the United States, for employment, for family, for recreation, for tax reasons. And no one can prevent someone, you know, whether they you know, are a U.S. citizen, are a permanent resident, don't have any status or a tourist, you know, from moving between states. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Caitlin, you've been writing about this issue for a really long time. Uh, talk about this push and pull between the federal government and what its policies are, its powers over immigration, and, and how uh, governors uh, feel about, uh, you know, making sure that they are able to, to, to run their states. I mean, the, the, this, is, this is a tension that plays out in lots of different arenas, but here you're talking about people and their lives. That's right. And and sometimes I feel like a broken record in in talking about and writing so frequently about the lack of action by Congress mm-hmm. when it comes to immigration, but that really is at the root of this. And and right, Senate Bill 1070 um, was perhaps the beginning of this this moment you've asked about where you're seeing a lot of state intervention or attempts at state intervention on immigration. You saw it um, you know, in states with left-leaning governments as well, um, again, in some places, c- cities and states that have tried to enact kind of restrictions to protect um, people without legal status who they viewed as, you know, more vulnerable and, and just less of a concern, frankly, from a state or a local level. You know, working parents who didn't have legal status um, but who, you know, didn't have any criminal record, had U.S. citizen children, for example, you saw cities and states move to protect people in that type of situation during the Trump administration, which, as you knew, you know, eliminated any real restriction on who could be deported and and just sort of sent um, ICE out with a broad mandate to um, pick up and, and deport anybody that they could find um, without legal status. And so You've seen state intervention um, from both directions, and I was actually just at an event listening to the Attorney General of Connecticut earlier this week talk about how, um, and I agree with him, that this is sort of natural um, when you have, in the the way that our legal system and our government is set up, you know, when you have a problem um, and it falls constitutionally to Congress to address it, but they don't. Um, you know, the issue doesn't go away. Mm-hmm. And so it falls down the line to, you know, the states and cities to, to try to work it out. Um, but it's very messy and it's very complicated. Um, and you have a lot of disagreement. And, and that fundamentally, I think, stems from a lack of direction from Congress. Um, you know, Congress's refusal to really give an evidence-based look at our immigration laws, which are outdated, um, which were written long before, uh, you know, the set of circumstances that we're dealing with now arose, you know, far before the the vast increase in migration from Central America um, started, but also, you know, you know, in, in an entirely different economic situation for our country, um, you know, a different national security situation or perceived national security situation in that moment um, for our country. So it, it, you know, all these things, humanitarian policy, economic policy, um, you know, it's employment-based visas, it's family-based visas. All these things deserve a hard look from Congress yeah. um, and really a modern look from Congress. And in the absence of action, you've left the Border Patrol and, and the border states to figure out how to act. And, you know, some of them are, um, and some of their leadership is, is you know, taking a cue from Donald Trump and, and I think really hoping to capitalize on in the same way that, 
Trump did as a candidate and then sometimes as president, you know, he capitalized on saying things, you know, that 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 didn't hold up factually, um, you know, for me as a reporter, um, but that played really well with certain voters. And so, you know, that's, I think, what you're seeing replicated um, because we haven't you know, really done what what needs to happen under the Constitution and, and under the system as it was set up, as you pointed out, um, which really calls for Congress's action here. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, when we come back, we are going to continue talking about immigration and this, uh, this action by uh, southern border governors to send migrants to their states, to other states. Uh, we want to hear from you as well during this conversation. Call and tell us what you make of these pictures of people being bussed or flown out of Texas or Florida for places up north. Do you think this is the right way to draw attention to the insufficiency of immigration policy here in the United States? Or is this just a political stunt at the expense of human beings? Uh, What would you do uh, to, to change immigration policy in America to make all of these issues play out a little easier and a little less cruelly? Uh, As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you in the program that way. We'll be right back after we raise a little money with more Detroit Today. WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. As always, thanks for tuning in. We're talking about immigration this hour with Caitlin Dickerson, staff writer at The Atlantic. She's been covering immigration for a really long time as a reporter for uh, NPR, The New York Times, and The Atlantic. Also with us is uh, Ruby Robinson, managing attorney at the Michigan Immigrant Rights Center. Uh, we're talking specifically about this, uh, this action by Southern border state governors to send migrants from their state to other states, to democratic states, where they say uh, the democratic enthusiasm for immigration should uh, include weathering the burden of of uh, migrants to this country. Uh, there are a lot of uh, strong opinions about what they're doing and lots of questions about the legality of what they're doing. We want to hear from you as well uh, during the conversation. Give us a call. Let us know what you make of these images of these people being sent away from the places that they've arrived in America to other places. Uh, Also, how do you think this fits into the larger context of our immigration challenges? The fact that we don't have the kind of immigration reform that might make it easier for migrants, especially those seeking asylum, to, to come to this country and be processed uh, in a much more efficient way. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and then we can include you in the conversation that way. I want to read a couple of social media comments and then actually go to the phones. Big Neo says, if these Republican governors are sending migrants, prosecute them for human trafficking uh, violations. Uh, An interesting take on uh, what they're doing. Uh, V-Spell on Twitter says, we are not the United States 
of America anymore. Cruel immigrant stunts, SCOTUS abortion ruling in the January 6th riots about our presidential election and COVID has shown me that. Many make fun of the U.K., but the U.K. seems more united than America does. Uh, I want to go to a particular uh, caller that we that we have. Uh, uh, Professor Linus Chan is director of the Detainee Rights Clinic and a law professor at the University of Minnesota Law School. Uh, professor Chan, uh, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So I, I wanted to have you talk specifically about this idea of the right to travel, which we've talked just a little bit about, uh, the, the, the right to, I guess, force people to travel, okay. uh, and, and how all of that fits into the discussion about what these, these governors are doing. One question is, does the right to travel apply to people who are not citizens or not yet citizens or have their their status here in in question um it seems to me that this is the, this is one of the 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 really central issues uh in, in what's going on and it's kind of, it's actually quite separate from um from some of the bigger immigration issues there, there there is this idea that we have as americans that we can go where we want uh, and and the idea that we could be forced to go where we want, I think, is pretty scary for for a lot of folks. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, one of your callers sort of uh, captured this idea that we are supposed to be the United States of America, and in fact, the idea that we should not restrict movement of people between the states. Now, this is different from, of course. Uh, having an idea of open borders. Mm -hmm. But this is the idea of once someone is in one state, can that state kick that person out, or can other states decide to not let people within their borders? And that's an idea um, even before our current Constitution was viewed by our founders as something that was extremely dangerous. The Articles of Confederation had specific language that allowed the free movement of not just citizens, but inhabitants uh, between the states. And that included also in something called the Northwest Ordinance, which controlled the territories of the United States before they became states. And then, of course, uh, that was sort of understood as part of the U.S. Uh, ideology about what it means to be a nation. Mm -hmm. Um, and I just want to highlight here, there, there was, there is sort of a, a common understanding by some folks that this idea of a right to travel between states is sort of only held by U.S. citizens. Hmm. Um, and I just want to say that I think that's, you know, there has been language from the Supreme Court, uh, but I think there's also... It's, a, it's actually a much more difficult question. Um, it's an issue that the Supreme Court has sort of struggled with about what that means, precisely because the actual drafting of the Constitution did not explicitly put that right in the Constitution. And so the court has sort of argued over the years about you know, whether or not it's part of the Privileges or Immunities Clause or whether it's part of Equal Protection. But I want to emphasize this 
really specifically in the context of immigration, one of the basis for this right to travel within different states is the very idea of how states should not interfere with an individual's ability to have a relationship with the federal government. Right. And, and that's an idea that comes uh, right after the Civil War. There was a case called Crandall versus Nevada. And in that, the Supreme Court really was very clear that this right of interstate travel was important because it preserved the ability of the federal court, of the federal country, the government, to have that interaction. And why is that important in this context? It's precisely because if you read some of the, the civil action that was filed uh, by lawyers for civil rights in Massachusetts, they make the point that these type of actions interfere with these people's ability to go to immigration court, hmm. to interact with the immigration process that was already taking place. And so I just want to emphasize here that there is this idea that when the states decide to push people out or not let people in, um, they are interfering with federal power and the federal ability to decide what's going on with these people who have sought asylum and protection in the United States. And, yeah. and, and that's kind of something that, at least in the past, the, the Supreme Court has looked very um, much down on it. Um, and then finally, I just I also uh, uh, want to note that it's never been a good idea for states to treat people as problems, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I think this first has, this has come up in the context of, of people who are poor. And if you can imagine, you know, what had happened in this particular situation was they were recruiting people from homeless shelters, from shelters. Right. They were going into shelters and saying, hey, are you do you have an immigration papers? Are you seeking refuge in the United States and then putting them on a plane or on a bus? And if you can imagine like, why other states would not like it, if, in, you know, if they decided any type of person were people that they were going to start shipping to other states, it can cause a lot of conflict between states. Yeah. This is where you suddenly have the governor of California challenging the governor of Florida to this sort of debate. But you can see how this is the beginning of a situation where you're really causing more and more conflict between the states. And it's one reason why this, the right of interstate travel has been seen as an important aspect to really treat the country as one country rather than... Uh, just a collection of different sovereignty. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Professor Chan, I, I'm really glad that we were able to uh, to include you in this conversation and have you talk specifically about uh, that issue, which I think has got a lot of people kind of confused. Uh, I really appreciate uh, the call and uh, your comments. Thanks so much for joining us. Of course. Thank yeah. you. Mm -hmm. Okay. I want to go next to Gloria in Southwest Detroit, uh, who's got a really important perspective on this as well because of her work. Uh, Gloria, go ahead. You there, Gloria? Gloria, can you, if you turn down your radio, you probably can hear. You there, Gloria? Yeah. Yeah, go you. ahead. 
So thank you very much for covering this topic. I, I, I'm not sure I have anything to add, but, but I was also thinking, well, a couple of things. I do have two things to add. You are familiar, those of us who live in southwest Detroit, we have Freedom House, yes. and I worked there for many years. Mm -hmm. And the experience there was life-changing. There's no way anyone can look at an immigrant and look at what's going on in the border and this latest stunt of the governor's and not have enormous compassion for them, but apparently their heart doesn't have room for that, and it's making their life ever more complicated than already is. And the other thing is the, the distinction, we use the word asylum seeker and refugees, and it's different. In my understanding, a refugee comes to the United States generally with approval from the State Department, so they, they can move forward. Mm -hmm. They have papers. They, an asylum seeker does not. And as we also know, the political issues, the persecution issues are far easier, and, and, and I said that with respect, to get asylum. With, with those, you can get asylum, whereas somebody that has cl coming from climate issues, economic refugees, they don't. Yeah. And lastly, consider every time we look at a person who has had to leave their country because they don't want to leave their country. They have to leave their country. And simply to think, what would I do? Where would I be if I did not have the help that I need? And they're going to contribute. And lastly, DACA. We've mm. got to pay attention to that issue. Yeah. We, in Southwest Detroit, we have a, and I, I can name in a lot of them, and I won't, for the, of young people that, that are amazing young people, and they can even get to college. They cannot even get, well, they can, but, but they have no certainty. They cannot right. get a driver's license. So, I mean, I could go on and on, Stephen, but yeah. no, where Gloria, is I, our I, heart I, as a nation? I, where is our heart as a nation? Yeah, I'm really That's glad you I'm called because, uh, because I know, uh, you know, in, in Southwest, of course, this looks really different than it does in other parts of Detroit. And, uh, and Freedom House is, is one of my favorite institutions here in the city of Detroit, all of the work that they do. Uh, with asylum seekers and 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 refugees and and uh, the, this distinction, uh, Ruby Robinson between um, uh, asylum seekers and refugees, I think, is important too. Um, but in general, this idea of people who are coming here because uh, they had to leave where they were from. I, I, I'm, I guess I'm curious about why they are the focus here uh, and why these are the, the migrants who are being sent uh, to these to these democratic states. Is there, it seems like they should be even more sympathetic um, uh, subjects because they are fleeing something quite awful. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I mean, we, we as an organization, you know, treat everyone with, with, with compassion and sympathy and, and empathy to the extent that we're able to, you know, really put ourselves in their situation. Uh, and I actually think that Gloria brings up an excellent point about the difference between refugees and asylum seekers. Yeah. To become a refugee, there's a very long process that occurs outside the United States that is actually a political process. Um, under U.S. law, you cannot be a refugee from Yemen, but you can be a refugee from Syria. Hmm. You can be a refugee from Afghanistan, but you cannot be a refugee from Azerbaijan um, you know, currently. Um, and so we do not have any refugee processes 
in the Western Hemisphere. We don't have any refugee processes in Latin America or Southern uh, or, or South America either. And so um, I think that is one possible explanation for why we're seeing more people show up at the southern border yeah. to apply for asylum protection here. Asylum is legal. It has always been legal. And it's, you know, it is a somewhat fair, orderly, and, and dignified process for people to, you know, present their claim. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's, and, and going back to what Caitlin was saying earlier, you know, for lack of, but for federal action, you know, states are making these hard decisions. Yeah. Um, I, I disagree with many of their decisions, but like they feel like they're forced to make a decision, um, even if it's kind of improvident or sure. um yeah. Or otherwise. Yeah. Um, Caitlin, I want to get you to address one uh, more subject before we have to, to end. Uh, Joe in Rochester is on the line, and, and rather than have him uh, ask his question, I'm going to put it to you. Uh, he, he says he wonders if business and lobbyists are stopping Congress from taking action because uh, migrant uh, labor is such a huge, important part of of our economy, uh, you've been talking about, you know, Congress's inaction. What role is that economic dimension playing in all of that? It's a very, very good question, um, and thank you for it. Because so often, you know, the immigration debate is is posed as one involving, you know, a group of people desperate to come to the United States and and a country, you know, upon whom they've been foisted that you know has to decide whether or not to you know, extend um, a hand in, in a gesture of, you know, generosity. But but the reality is, yes, our economy and Americans benefit greatly from um, undocumented labor and from, you know, the low paying labor, um, a lot of which is done by immigrants in this country. And so the lobbying efforts that you see are mixed. Um, you know, in, in recent years, you have actually seen, I think, a real transition when it comes to um, whether it's chambers of commerce or or lobbying groups representing farmers and dairy owners, um, I've done a lot of reporting in you know agricultural hubs in in the country. I grew up in one myself in the Central Valley of California. You know farms and dairies that have relied on immigrant labor um, for many decades, and I actually do know of, of various groups doing significant lobbying, looking for more legal pathways for immigrants to fill these jobs. Mm -hmm. um, and so there, there's support for immigration there. But, you know, you've also seen a real quieting of the um, moderate wing of the Republican Party, you know, which used to be much more reliably pro-immigrant from a business perspective, from a, a labor perspective, um, you know, the Wall Street Journal um, you know, was was sort of reliably pro-immigrant for a long time on that basis. And that wing of the Republican Party really seems to have gone quiet. Mm. Um, I think that's more of a, a political consideration than it is an economic one. But it, but there's no question um, that there are lots of businesses that benefit from the fact that they rely on a, a fundamentally subjugated workforce, you know, um, and it's very common for immigrants and particularly immigrants without legal status to experience wage theft, you know, to, to just not be paid for their work or to be underpaid for their work. 
um, to not get the same rights and protections that they should legally get um, because of this fear some employers know that their workers have of, of actually speaking up and coming forward. They don't want to get deported and so they won't um, say anything about it. So, you know, there, there are groups that benefit um, from the, the status quo. There's also, um, I think, a really important lobbying force in the immigration detention space. You know, mm-hmm. private prison companies um, have a lot of money and do some really, really critical lobbying to try to keep um, the status quo as it is. So um, those are really, really good questions to ask and yeah. to put to your elected officials. And, and you know, you know, is this why we're not seeing more action? I think it's definitely in part, um, you know, the answer is, is partially at least yes. Yeah. Yeah. OK. Uh, Caitlin Dickerson of the Atlantic, Ruby Robinson of the Michigan Immigration Rights Center. It was really great to have both of you here for this conversation. Thanks so much for joining us on uh, Detroit Today. Thank you. That's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow. We're going to talk with acclimated author Joyce Carol Oates about her new novel that centers on Detroit. Then we're going to talk with Detroit Tigers baseball star Willie Horton about his new memoir and his career with the Tigers. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.